Paleo-Presbyterianism versus Neo-Presbyterianism by Michael Wagner, 1996. Since the late 1980s or early 1990s, the American conservative movement has begun to break apart. The movement had been held together for many years by a common fear of Soviet expansionism. With the collapse of the Soviet Empire, divergent elements within the conservative movement began to reassert their distinctive emphases. Broadly speaking, the movement has fractured into two groups, the Paleoconservatives and the Neoconservatives. Paleo meaning old and Neo meaning new. The Paleos hold to the original position of the old right, namely opposition to big government and support for conservative cultural morality. The Neos are much more willing to compromise with big government and have less enthusiasm for cultural conservative issues such as opposition to abortion and homosexual rights. The terms paleoconservative and neoconservative are therefore helpful in making distinctions between hardcore conservatives who are committed to the original conservative position and those who are willing to water down genuine conservatism for the sake of expediency or respectability. For more on this, see Justin Raimondo's book, Reclaiming the American Right, 1993. Similarly, among the broad Presbyterian movement, a type of fracture has also begun to emerge. Some Presbyterians are returning to the original Presbyterian position of full subscription to the Westminster Standards, including obedience to the continuing moral obligations of the National Covenant of Scotland and the Solemn League and Covenant. This group could accurately be labeled Paleo-Presbyterians, since they hold to the original conception of what Presbyterianism means. In contrast, those Presbyterians unwilling to accept full subscription to the standards or the binding nature of the covenants could be called Neo-Presbyterians, since they have effectively watered down the original Presbyterian position. Using these terms will help to clarify the issues at stake in the emerging debate between Covenanters or Paleo-Presbyterians and all other Presbyterians or Neo-Presbyterians. Oaths and covenants made by men that are agreeable to the word of God are perpetually binding. Quote, to covenants, the matter of which is so evidently agreeable to the unalterable precepts of the moral law, we may safely apply the inspired apostle's language. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Galatians 3.15 Indeed, if it can once be proved, as it has often been, in the most convincing manner, that the church as such, as well as men in other capacities, may warrantably enter into public scriptural covenants at all, their obligation must necessarily be perpetual, inasmuch as the church, collectively considered, is still the same permanent society which can never die, though the individuals of whom she may have been composed in any given period should be no more. And if even civil deeds amongst men, when they are legally executed, bind not only the persons presently entering into them, but them, their heirs and successors to all generations, much more must we consider these religious covenants, which are executed according to the revealed will of our heavenly lawgiver, to be binding not only upon the generation of the church, more immediately entering into them, but also on their heirs and successors to the end of the world." Unquote. That's taken from An Explanation and Defense of the Terms of Communion by the Reformed Presbytery, pages 184 to 185. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. Every Presbyterian recognizes the legitimacy and obligation of one generation to bind a subsequent generation in a covenant relationship with God. This is what infant baptism is all about. But scripturally, this phenomenon extends beyond baptism. Quote, it cannot be denied that several obligations do bind to posterity, such as public promises with annexation of curses to breakers, Nehemiah 5, verses 12 and 13. Thus Joshua's adjuration did oblige all posterity never to build Jericho, Joshua 6.26, and the breach of it did bring the curse upon Heel the Bethelite in the days of Ahab, 
Secondly, public vows. Jacob's vow, Genesis 28:21, did oblige all his posterity virtually comprehended in him, Hosea 12, verse 4. The Rechabites found themselves obliged to observe the vow of their forefather, Jonadab, Jeremiah 35, verses 6 and 14, for which they were rewarded and commended. Public oaths to oblige posterity. Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel to carry up his bones to Canaan, Genesis 1.25, which did oblige posterity some hundred years after, Exodus 13.19, Joshua 24.32. National covenants with men before God do oblige posterity as Israel's covenant with the Gibeonites, Joshua 9, verses 15 and 19. The breach whereof was punished in the days of David, 2 Samuel 21.1. Especially national covenants with God before men about things moral and objectively obliging are perpetual, and yet more especially, as Grotius observes, when they are of an hereditary nature, i.e., when the subject is permanent, the matter moral, the end good, and in the form there is a clause expressing their perpetuity. Unquote. That's taken from the Arkansas Renovation by the Reformed Presbytery, 1880, pages 49 to 50. This was the unchallenged view of the Presbyterians of the 16th and 17th centuries. Samuel Rutherford, for example, the well-known Scottish theologian, was clearly committed to this view. See his book, A Free Disputation Against Pretended Liberty of Conscience, 1649, pages 274 to 275. Incidentally, the main argument for covenanting is the same argument at the foundation of theonomy. Quote, It was obviously a duty under the Old Testament dispensation, and being nowhere repealed, and being moral and not typical, it is of present obligation." That is from the book Reformed Presbyterian Catechism by William Roberts, 1853, page 137. In 1638, the people of Scotland took a national covenant as a means of solidifying resistance against the imposition of English popish ceremonies, as George Gillespie called them, Five years later, during this confusing period of British history, representatives of England, Scotland, and Ireland took the Solemn League and Covenant, binding their nations together to hold to biblical truth and resist all error, particularly Roman Catholicism and Episcopalianism. The Westminster Assembly of Divines, which had just begun meeting that year, 1643, enthusiastically took the Solemn League and Covenant. See William Hetherington's book, History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines, pages 124 to 128. Aside from its political aspects, the Solemn League and Covenant committed the three nations to certain ecclesiastical goals. George Gillespie, one of the most prominent Scottish commissioners at the Assembly, noted what these goals were, quote, Yet I must needs justify, as not only lawful but laudable, what the Solemn League and Covenant of the three kingdoms obligeth us unto, namely, to endeavor to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms to the nearest conjunction and uniformity in one confession of faith, one directory of worship, one form of church government and catechism, unquote. That's taken from the works of George Gillespie, Volume 2, page 82. The Westminster Standards created by the Assembly were thus the documents produced in fulfillment of the Solemn League and Covenant. The civil governments as well as churches of all three nations were bound to the Westminster Standards. That the Westminster Standards were seen as part of the fulfillment of the Solemn League and Covenant is clear. As the great Presbyterian historian Thomas McCree notes, quote, When the Confession of Faith and the Catechisms were agreed to, the Scottish Commissioners took leave of the Westminster Assembly, and after an absence of about four years, returned to Scotland, and gave an account of the proceedings to the General Assembly which met in August 1647. This Assembly, of which Mr. Robert Douglas was moderator, is memorable in our history for having received the Westminster Confession of Faith as a part of the uniformity of a religion to which the three kingdoms had become bound in the Solemn League." 
That's taken from his book, The Story of the Scottish Church, page 205. McCree emphasizes this further, quote, We may here state once for all that the larger and shorter catechisms, propositions for church government and the directory for public worship, which had been drawn up by the Westminster Assembly in conjunction with the commissioners from the Church of Scotland, were also received, approved, and ratified by the General Assembly in several acts relating to them as parts of the covenanted uniformity. These acts of approbation by the Church were afterwards ratified by the Estates and Parliament, and thus, so far as Scotland was concerned, the stipulations of the Solemn League were cordially and honourably fulfilled." Unquote. That again is taken from the story of the Scottish Church, pages 205 to 206. This shows the inseparability of the Solemn League and Covenant and the Westminster Standards. Indeed, the Solemn League is really a part of the Westminster Standards. Anyone who would claim to strictly adhere to the Westminster Standards must also hold to the Solemn League and Covenant. This conclusion is clear from the Westminster Standards themselves. One of those standards is the form of Presbyterial Church government. Speaking of ministers, this document states the following, quote, He that is to be ordained, being either nominated by the people or otherwise commended to the presbytery for any place, must address himself to the presbytery and bring with him a testimonial of his taking the covenant of the three kingdoms, of his diligence and proficiency in his studies, what degrees he hath taken in the university, and what hath been the time of his abode there, and with all of his age, which is to be twenty-four years, but especially of his life and conversation. Unquote. The covenant of the three kingdoms mentioned in this document is the Solemn League and Covenant. According to the Westminster Standards, a man cannot be ordained unless he has taken the Solemn League and Covenant. This by itself is conclusive. It demonstrates that in the minds of the Westminster divines, no one can truly adhere to the standards without taking the Solemn League and Covenant. Indeed, taking the covenant was a necessary prerequisite for receiving communion, as the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland ruled in 1648. Quote, Act for taking the covenant at the first receiving of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and for the receiving of it also by all students at their first entry to colleges. The General Assembly, according to former recommendations, doth ordain that all young students take the covenant at their first entry to colleges, and that hereafter all persons whosoever take the covenant at their first receiving the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, requiring hereby provincial assemblies, presbyteries, and universities to be careful that this act be observed and account thereof taken in the visitation of universities and particular kirks and presbyteries." Unquote. Lest anyone question the relevance of the National Covenant of Scotland at this point, it is important to note that Thomas McCree stated that the Solemn League, quote, comprehends the substance of the National Covenant of Scotland, unquote, page 149 of his book, Unity of the Church. Since that time, there has always been a body of Presbyterians that have recognized this truth. For obvious reasons, they have commonly been referred to as Covenanters. They did not accept the Revolution settlement that resulted from the Glorious Revolution of 1689 because it violated the terms of the Solemn League and Covenant. They took very seriously the binding nature of the Solemn League and Covenant. As a result, they hold as a term of communion and acknowledgement, quote, that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament that the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution, and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person, and in consistency with this, that the renovation of these covenants at Arkansas 1712 was agreeable to the Word of God, unquote. That's taken from the Act, Declaration, and Testimony for the Whole of Our Covenanted Reformation by the Reformed Presbytery, 1876, page 216. 
the renovation of which this speaks was a recommitment to the covenants in the face of widespread defection from them. Most Presbyterians did defect from the covenants in accepting the revolution settlement, and these are the spiritual forefathers of the Neo-Presbyterians. The Arkansas renovation simply reflects the theological position of the Westminster divines. The Westminster divines are the true definers of original Presbyterianism. They have never been surpassed in doctrinal knowledge. Paleo-Presbyterians are those who acknowledge that no one has ever been able to show any doctrinal error in the standards they produced. The Westminster standards, including the covenants, are completely agreeable to the word of God. As such, they are binding on all who profess the name of Christ. There are those who are generally favorable to the Westminster standards, but who wrongly perceive weaknesses in them, or are not willing to accept the binding nature of the covenants. It is these people that deserve the name Neo-Presbyterians. They are new in the sense of being more recent historically, and in the sense of having turned away from the original Presbyterian position. Paleo-Presbyterians see it as their task to win their Neo-Presbyterian brethren back to the complete unadulterated truth. The truth will ultimately prevail. May the light of God's truth shine brightly in the hearts of all his children. For further study, please see the following books. The Act, Declaration, and Testimony for the Whole of Our Covenant and Reformation by the Reformed Presbytery, 1876. Arkansas Renovation of the National Covenant and Solemn League and Covenant by the Reformed Presbytery, 1880 edition. A Short Vindication of Our Covenant and Reformation by the Reformed Presbytery, 1879. A Contemporary Covenanting Debate or Covenanting Redivivus by Reg Barrow, 1996. An Explanation and Defense of the Terms of Communion Adopted by the Community of Dissenters by the Reformed Presbytery. The Divine Right of Church Government by Sundry Ministers of London, 1646. The Ordinance of Covenanting by John Cunningham, 1843. Plain Reasons for Presbyterians Dissenting by Andrew Clarkson, 1731. A Free Disputation Against Pretended Liberty of Conscience by Samuel Rutherford, 1649. Alexander and Rufus, Dialogues on Church Communion by John Anderson. Acts of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, 1638-1649 inclusive. An Apologetical Relation by John Brown of Wamfrey. Vindicii Legis, or the Moral Law and Covenants by Anthony Burgess, 1647. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.